The Bob Murphy Show, episode 310. you gonna do get ready for another episode of the bob murphy show the podcast promoting free markets free minds and grateful souls it's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a christian and economist now here's your host bob murphy hey everybody welcome back to the bob murphy show today my guest is going to be dominic scarcella who describes himself on his sub Substack as trying to be a good neighbor and a bad citizen. And you might say, that's an unusual thing to say. And that's because we're going to be talking about his book, Good Neighbor, Bad Citizen, Reflections on the Core Social Conflict Revealed by Jesus Christ's Way of the Cross. So how Dominic got on my radar is I have recently been a guest on Brittany Schaefer's podcast, and she said, hey, I just had my friend Dominic on, on as well, and we were talking about, is Jesus an anarchist, that kind of stuff, and I thought this will be a good guy to have on the Bob Murphy Show. So that's what we're talking about, his book. Um, we do get into some, I guess, I guess you could say political issues near the end, but it's really more about what the title of the book suggests that here it's not that I want to get into libertarianism or anything with Dominic. I really am just trying to grapple with his thesis that Jesus teaches us to be a good neighbor but a bad citizen, right? And I uh, run his thesis through the wind tunnel because there's obvious uh, ways that a standard Christian might object to that claim. So without further ado, here is my very pleasant discussion with Dominic Scarcella. Dominic, welcome to the Bob Murphy Show. Thank you, Bob. Great to be here. Well, the main attraction, so the, the backstory here is uh, Brittany Schaefer had had me on her show for two uh, episodes on, uh, what was it, P private security without the state and then mm -hmm. uh, healthcare without the state. And yep. then she mentioned that she thought you would be a good guest for this show. She linked to it, I guess, a discussion you guys had had about Jesus being an anarchist or, or, you know, whether he is. And the, so the premise we're, we're going to fo focus on it is your book. So I know you've got it handy. Do you want to hold that up for those who are watching the video? Great. Let's uh, see if that shows up. Well, uh, good neighbor, bad citizen. Yes. Okay. So that's what we should just dive right into. I think, well, maybe before doing that, do you want to just give a little bit of background about, you know, where you're coming from? So people know, you know, if they want to put you into a box, that sort of thing, just, just understand your, your perspective. Oh, sure. Uh, box me in if, if, if you think you can, right? <laughs> uh, I, I live in uh, southern New Jersey. I've been sort of a northeast resident my whole life. Um, I am a lifelong, uh, I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't say lifelong Christian because I'm one of those people who, who went through most of my childhood and teen years, not really paying attention and not knowing about it. Mm. But since I've been an adult, I, I've, I've been a Christian. Um, I, I've taught it uh, religious education at various parishes, um, and I, I, I try to live it. Um, so are you Catholic? I am Catholic, okay. um, and, and I, uh, 
you know, sometime last year, based on um, some some uh, classes I had given and and some discussions that rose out of it, it suddenly hit me that uh, I should write something called "Good Neighbor, Bad Citizen." Um, to try and counter the notion that as as Christians we're supposed to be good citizens all the time and and uh, outsource our ethics to the state mm-hmm. and and just do whatever we're told by by quote unquote authorities. Uh, so here we are with uh, with with almost an, an accidental book and an accidental author, but it's it's been a wild ride and and uh, doing this has helped me have conversations with a lot of fascinating people, a lot of people who I've uh, uh, read for years. Like for instance, uh, you, I've known about your writings for more than a decade, mostly through the the Mises Institute. Oh, okay. Uh, so so this this is wonderful, and uh, uh, like you said, uh, Brittany Schaefer, uh, mm-hmm. who uh, who has been one of the people who was very kind to to speak to me about this book uh she introduced the two of us online and uh and i in fact used one of your uh conversations with her in one of my substack articles because uh, I, I thought you gave a wonderful description of how how um language emerges sort of without a top-down centralized um mechanism dictating it to people mm-hmm. and and i thought well if if the thing we use most often with other people, language can can succeed in a voluntarist and consent based and organic nature, then then my goodness, why couldn't other things? <laughs> right, right. And what I also like the reason I love using the spoken or natural language example just to get people thinking when it comes to like private law things like that, which admittedly is. If you've never heard someone make the case for that, it sounds insane. It's not even just that it sounds insane. It sounds like it's contradictory. Like how could there be a rule of law if there's not some single group in charge of you know codifying and, or, and enforcing the law? And what I like about it is because there's a fact of the matter whether a sentence is grammatical or not. Right. So it's not sure. it's not completely arbitrary. It's just like, hey, just you know, wear whatever fashion set clothes you want. You know, it's you know, someone could objectively say you what you just said is an ungrammatical sentence. And yet there's a sense in which, well, you know, said who? Well, the way the community uses the words, like we, we speak differently from how mm-hmm. Shakespeare wrote. And yet, uh, you know, there's also a sense though, that at any given time, there really is a fact of the matter, at least in certain clear cut examples of, nope, that's grammatical or that isn't. And mm-hmm. so just, you know, Hey, how can there be spontaneously adopted rules that evolve over time? And yet no one group is in charge of English grammar. It's kind of interesting. Okay, so, so go. Let me just get it. When you mentioned Jersey, like my wheels, is it Journal Square? When I went to grad school, I spent some time living in New Jersey. I okay. went to NYU, and I think I took the path train out and changed at Journal Square. Does that sound right? Is there a station there? That's Northern New Jersey around Newark. I am in yeah. Southern New Jersey. Okay. I'm about half an hour due south of Philadelphia. Okay, so almost parallel with the Mason Dixon line. Okay, all right. So that's that was my my Jersey story. All okay, right. very good. Yeah, we all have one, don't we? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, so the book is "Good Neighbor, Bad Citizen: Reflections yes. on the Core Social Conflict Revealed by Jesus Christ's Sorry, by Jesus Christ's Way of the Cross." Yes. Uh, and let me see here. I think you in your introduction here. Let's see. Da, 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 da. Good neighbors treat each other as peers. Good citizens treat each other according to official status. Good neighbors seek the personal, intimate betterment of themselves and each other. Good citizens seek the external validation of an impersonal system. Okay, so you're going through 
So your claim is, what you're arguing in this book, is that Jesus was a very good neighbor and, sh- and modeled yes. that behavior to show you <laughs> what does it mean to be you know, a good neighbor, but he was a bad citizen. Is mm-hmm. it, am I putting words in your mouth, or that's, that's what you're claiming? That's it, and thank you uh, okay. for, for reading from the beginning of the introduction there. Yes, I mean, good citizens aren't killed as capital criminals, right? <laughs> well, let's, if you don't mind, because <laughs> sure. I, I did, let's um, postpone that quite, because I want to come to that, but you, you first, like the way you laid out in the book I liked, you first give three paradigmatic examples okay. of, of showing you know, what you mean, and then you, you get into... Uh, sure, you know the the, what, the argument you just made because there I'm going to push back a little bit. But before we start arguing, let me first sure, just do it. let yes, you make please. the case. Okay, so you're given three examples you know, that are familiar to anyone who's familiar with the gospel accounts mm-hmm. from Jesus' life, uh, where you think it's clear that he's you know showing no. I emphasize being neighborliness over citizenship. Mm-hmm. So do you want to just walk through that just so people understand where you're coming from? Sure. The the first one is uh, from the temptation of Jesus, which uh, precedes his public ministry. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the the uh, I wind up going through all three of the temptations, if you're fil- uh, familiar with the gospel, uh, at different points during the book. But the one I do in the introduction is uh, perhaps the simplest one, um, where, uh, the, the, as the story goes, it's it's Jesus out in the desert. Uh, fasting, getting prepared, sort of getting away from people before he emerges as a a, mm-hmm. a a preacher, because you know he 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 sort of wants a clean slate with people. He he uh, he's already had problems um, in his hometown with people like going. Well, we know this guy. Who who is he? Mm-hmm. You know who's he to tell us anything? Uh, so he's he's sort of emerging quietly, and and. Um, and as a peer and at the same level of other people. So he's out in the desert. And uh, as the story in the gospel goes, uh, then the devil took Jesus up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a single instant. The devil said to him, I shall give to you all the power, all this power and their glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I may give it to whomever I wish. And all this will be yours if you worship me. Jesus said to him in reply, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone shall you serve. So this is a, a, a very early example of Jesus um, not conforming to earthly ideas about what a great person and a leader should be. And in fact, all three of the temptations in the desert are those. They, they all foreshadow things that some people, in fact, maybe most people will expect of Jesus. And Jesus doesn't give that to them. He gives them something better, but of course, it's not what they want. And they're confused and they don't understand. And that's where the, the tension comes in. The, the real social conflict comes in. Mm-hmm. So, okay. So just, yeah, that's interesting. So just that last point I think you made there, you're so I think most people who are even vaguely familiar with that would say, oh, yeah, you know, being tempted and the devil offering him the world, basically, mm-hmm. if he'll sell his soul kind of thing. And, you know, yes. Jesus gives the correct answer that no. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you're tying it even more specifically, say, like the expectations of what many of the Jewish people thought the Messiah was going to come do was like liberate them from the Roman oppressors and be a, you know, like a king like David or something. Sure. And, and then that's partly why they didn't understand what the heck was going on. And they certainly didn't think he was going to be killed because we talk, how can he liberate us from our, you know, earthly oppressors if, if he gets wiped out by them? 
Sure, sure. Okay, so that's so all your your link. It's just interesting. I never linked those those two elements together that you're saying in a sense that last temptation from Satan was catering to what a lot of people just assume that's that's what you're here to do, right? Mm-hmm. And the others as well. Um, mm-hmm. The the uh, the one there where he rejects the earthly power that's that's the temptation to to conquer and oppress the human condition. Mm-hmm. And of course, the temptation about why don't you turn these stones into bread and feed yourself? Mm-hmm. That's the temptation to simply satiate the human condition. Mm-hmm. Why not just make it so that everybody has whatever they want, whenever they want? Right. And then uh, the, the other temptation, which was, you know, throw yourself down off the, the top of the temple and have your angels come in and swoop and, and catch you before you hit the ground. That's the temptation to deny the human condition. And of course, Jesus isn't here to. Uh, satiate the human condition or deny the human condition or to oppress the human condition. He's here to show us the better parts of it, which is what we call redemption. Mm -hmm. And so he has a lot of work to do with people who are stuck in this sort of the old wine skins. He's given them new wine and they want old wine skins. Mm -hmm. And and so it's an uphill battle. And most people don't get there within Jesus's maybe two and a half to three years of public ministry. But of course, you know, as we know from history, the, the early church, which is not a powerful church politically at all, they're still persecuted for a good 280 years. They managed to spread this message and, and change a few minds and hearts. Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. Yeah, also, let's dwell on this for a moment more. Sure. So you, you, your quote, what, which uh, translation are you using? Did you? I uh, I'm using... Um, Let's see here. It's the um, New American Bible, okay. uh, which is easy to find online at the uh, USCCB website, usccb.org. Um, and I use those um, those New American uh, – I am Catholic, so I, I always go to the Catholic Bible because it's it's kind of – splitting the difference from a lot of the English translations mm-hmm. that are out there popularly. Um, and it also includes um, uh, references to other parts of the Gospels and context notes, which are very helpful when you're trying to understand something that's not your culture. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it'll also include notes about like, you know, this brief bit of words was not included in the oldest manuscripts, but it does occur in other ones. So like they'll bracket some text right, right. Uh, to, to indicate that, you know, it's, it's not, um, it's not as if the, the Bible just comes to us because Jesus sat down and wrote it himself. Right. In fact, right. to our knowledge, Jesus doesn't do any writing of manuscripts. It's all encountered and preached first. And it's up to the first generation of Christians to write it down, to be able to transmit it to a much wider audience. That's an interesting observation. I mean, I obviously knew that. Like, if you asked me what part of the Bible did Jesus write by hand, I would say none. <laughs> like, I knew I knew that, but yet I never really had thought about that. That's that's interesting. Yeah, okay. and we take that for granted nowadays yeah. because we're such a remote culture. Mm-hmm. But the, mm-hmm. the first form of the gospel is lived in the person of Christ and encountered directly. Um, the second form of the gospel is preached, which is what happens in that direct encounter. It's only the third form of the gospel, maybe the third iteration of the gospels that is transmitted remotely, where somebody can write it down and someone can read it without having someone else actually present it to them. Mm-hmm. Which is, and, and most of our society now works like that in the, in the first world, in the developed world. Like you and I right now are, are remoting over some fantastic technology. We've never been in the same room with each other. 
Right, right. So this is this is what people are used to. I've read your articles, even though you've never written them down for me or recited them to me. Mm-hmm. You know, for, for 10 years, I've been doing that. So we live in a remote first culture. But the gospel, of course, is remote third. Right, right. Um, okay, so just going back to this, you said the uh, then he took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a single instant. The devil said to him, I shall give to you all this power and their glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I may give it to whomever I wish. All this will be yours if you worship me. And then you, you know, after you're done with the quote, you come back and you you comment, among other things. Note also that the devil claims this government power is under his domain. Jesus offers no objection to this point. The world's regimes are indeed the devil's doing. So, again, just to emphasize that some people may have thought that, oh, the, the devil is lying here. Like, this is a false promise the devil couldn't deliver, but that's not prima facie with the message. The message is, no, the devil actually could give him the world in exchange for his soul, but Jesus, sure. you know, knows, as he will say famously later on, that's, no, it's not, that's not worth it. That's a bad bargain. Not worth it. Not a bad bargain. And, and of course, this is foreshadowing Jesus's ministry. So this happens mm. again and again during his public ministry. And I go through some of the examples later in the introduction and then uh, later in the rest of the book. And, and by the way, if you're wondering, I'll hold it up again. There's the spine of the book. Mm-hmm. This book was almost too short for the publishers to give it a spine. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's that short a read. So when I say later on in the book, I'm not talking about hundreds of pages yeah. later. I'm talking about this, this book is 64 pages, and, and the pages aren't that big. Right, right. <laughs> but, but unlike the author, the author is not spineless by any stretch. Oh, I, I sure hope not. Thank you, Bob. <laughs> um, so, but do you want to, like, because since you say you, you're in the, uh, you know, religious education, like, whether someone's literally asked you this or hypothetically, yes. what if somebody did say, well, wait a minute. What, what does it mean the devil, you know, the, the world is the devil's and it's been given to him to decide who to give it to? Like, what, can you explain that? Like, what does that mean? That doesn't, that doesn't sound right to me. Why isn't, isn't the world God's? Oh, the, the God creates the world, but he gives us, uh, I, I believe as a Christian, he gives us free will. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and he also makes us limited. And I go into the human condition quite a lot during this, this book because um, one of the, the big things that strikes you about going through Jesus's way of the cross rather than other parts of his ministry is how much the human condition comes into this and how, and God must think the human condition is valuable, even though it's limited. And so of course our limits, um, they, they spring up in, in all sorts of ways. Um, we, we have flaws and one of those flaws is, we we like things to be imposed you know and th- this is this is perhaps the old mesopotamian god marduk who who creates the world by imposing on the the tiamat chaos monster um so we we like imposed order we we almost don't care how we get to order and and you being an austrian school economist and and me being a student of the austrian school you know, we will right away recognize that wait a minute, there's more order than imposed order. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we're in the minority there. We, we, we talk about spontaneous order. Um, and perhaps in religious language, you would call that revealed order, which means that even though we don't know it and we can't control it, if we look hard enough, 
there are connections there, but it takes a lot of effort. Imposed order is, is sort of the psychological path of least resistance. Mm -hmm. It's easy to do. It's easy to want a ruler. It's easy to want someone to force everybody to do something. That's mentally a very low effort position to take. And that's why it's popular. Because for most of human civilization, humans were so tired just trying to survive <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> that there weren't a lot of people um, doing uh, perhaps uh, what, what you do and I do, which is uh, spend some time giving all this thought to some of the better things about our, our human natures. Mm -hmm. Okay, and so are you saying that temptation i guess it would be an appropriate term to just you know hey you it would be good if people poor unskilled workers got paid more let's just pass a law and have the government point guns at everybody and get it done that way problem solved that the 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 temptation to just take the easy way out and impose sure. things you're saying that it, it's not uh it's actually not odd that the bible seems here to be saying that that realm falls under the, the jurisdiction of Satan in some sense? It's not odd at all because um, it's, it's the default condition for all of human history as far as we can tell. Like, we, we all start out worshiping imposed order. It takes a lot of effort to break out of that. Mm -hmm. and, and that's why um, Christianity is, is so difficult for a lot of people because it— Christ goes against the psychological path of least resistance. He goes against the easy way. Um, there are even passages in the Old Testament, I think it's the first book of Samuel, where the, the Israelite people start clamoring for a king. And Samuel the prophet is telling them, no, you don't want a king. And they're saying, oh, yes, we do. We want a king because other people have kings and we want to be like other people. Mm -hmm. So it's almost that fear of missing out that we would call in, in modern parlance FOMO right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's that fear of missing. Everybody else has a king and look how they have a king to look up to. And we want that. And, and they have someone who marches around and has big parades and, and, and conquers things. And, and it, it's the strong man. We, we, we have that today in our country. People like the strong man. Mm -hmm. People like the, the quasi dictator, as long as he's on your side, because then it doesn't feel like he's a dictator. But of course, if you're not on his side, then you know quite well that this is dictatorial. And this mm -hmm. is impositional, and this is not optimal at all. So, so yes, uh, Christianity, remember, Jesus is speaking to people who have been struggling for almost 2,000 years themselves with what we call the Law and the Prophets that are recorded in the Hebrew Scriptures. Mm -hmm. So they are steeped in this journey. Uh, the Bible is... I'll give you a six-word definition that I give my students. The Bible is God's gradual revelation in human history, right? So it's gradual. It doesn't happen all at once. And it's in human history, which means it, it contends with the, the, the messy parts of human nature. And one of those messy parts of human nature is the attraction of imposing on people, the attraction of forcing your way on other people, the, the, the attraction of status, the attraction of dominance, mm -hmm. rather than consent and voluntarism and, and uh, 
being on the same level as people, as peers. You know, it, it takes responsibility to act with freedom. It takes, it takes effort and tolerance to treat other people as peers, knowing that we're different and we're going to have different ideas and preferences and we'll have to work them out. Um, it, and, and if you're exhausted by that, then you can see why people just go for the shortcut. They, they go for, um, as I've heard, uh, I think Brett, Brett Weinstein, uh, Weinstein say, uh, streamlining the process. Mm -hmm. And so that, that's what Jesus has to counter. He has to counter people who just want the, the easy way out, the, the, the magnanimous way out, the powerful looking way out, the prestigious way out, the high status way out, the hierarchical way out. Um, the, the, the imposed, um, forced and domination way out and, and the riches and the pageantry and all those things that we celebrate. There are people today who fawn over the Royal family in Britain. Right. And, and, and Americans too, who, you know, I, we're supposed to, from our history, be against that. And yet people fawn over the riches and the pageantry and the appearance of grandeur and power. Or even just like celebrity couples and, oh, what are they up to? And da, 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 Sure. Yeah. <laughs> it's in us. It's our default condition. It's in us. It takes effort to fight it. And, and that's why Jesus doesn't just tell us to fight it. He gives us an example. He, Jesus is God uh, leading by example. Yep. Yeah, I like to think of like in the Old Testament or Hebrew scriptures, it's like, you know, God lays down the law literally and says, this is what you're supposed to do. And then the New Testament, he says, here, let me show you. <laughs> so. And he's correcting it as well. The, mm -hmm. Jesus' ministry is him correcting people's mistakes. And he's not correcting a bunch of noobs. Right. He's correcting Pharisees and, and scholars and high priests. He's correcting uh, even ordinary Israelite people who've, who've lived in this culture forever and who are familiar with uh, their old older texts. So he's he's filling in the blanks. He's correcting people's mistakes and misinterpretations and where they got it wrong. Um, not because we're supposed to mock uh, previous cultures, but simply because it was incomplete. It's, it's a gradual revelation. So when Jesus shows up, he's not saying, oh, look at you losers who got things wrong. Right. He's saying, let me help you fill in the blanks that you may have not have gotten to yet. He's trying to bring people to the right answers. He's trying to bring people to the, the, the mode of being that is the best way of living, knowing that they, they haven't quite gotten there on their own yet. That's, mm -hmm. that's part of mercy. But of course, that, that mercy speaks to our limitations. And it's one thing for the merciful person to recognize our limitations. It's another thing for us to recognize our own limitations and see where we need to improve. Okay, let's let's keep moving. The sure. next one you got is the Good Samaritan. So this sure. everyone's going to get where you know the neighborly part. But how are you using this to show the contrast between being a good neighbor versus being a good citizen? Um, well, uh, like you said, the 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 Good Samaritan um, is, is often used to show that the it's the Samaritan who's looked down upon by Jesus's immediate audience. Um, it, yeah, I think a lot of people don't know that. I mean, just obviously true scholars or know it, but sure. in general, yeah, I think people don't understand that he picked Samaritan on purpose. On purpose, because it, it's a, uh, it, for, well, for two reasons. Number one, he's, he's playing on their tribalist prejudices. Um, mm -hmm. 
people are naturally tribal. The, the people of Jesus's time were tribal as well. Um, back then it was more your, your actual biological lineage. Nowadays we're more creative with our tribalism. We have political parties. We have, um, activist movements, identities, whatnot. But people are tribalists and people back then are tribalists as well. Um, and the, the Samaritans are, are, um, a group of people who would have been perhaps considered inferior. So, so Jesus is also teaching them something about their own prejudice. Mm-hmm. in this story um and it's it, the the character of the samaritan as well plays into the um the, the story you know I, I i write after going through the long passage about the the good samaritan um in which there's a, if we just want to sum it for people there's a a a man felt falls victim to robbers on a not very nice road um out in the the countryside there um and as he's lying there half dead um uh beaten and robbed um a priest happens along down the road but passes by on the opposite side then a, a levite also wanders by and passes by on the opposite side and then a samaritan traveler approaches and sees him and goes over and checks on the guy and helps him up and takes him to a place where he can receive some care and and actually makes a little bit of a sacrifice um for this this uh, victim to receive good care and um the the way i i um summarize this is i say it may be tempting to dismiss the priest and the levite as thoughtless individuals with no sense of responsibility to their fellow humans but this view shortchanges their situations so i'm i'm trying to be sympathetic to them i'm trying to be sympathetic to the bad guys here <laughs> right 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 in the story Priests and Levites occupied positions of status within the social order. In accordance with their privileged offices, they were forbidden to to touch or get too close to dead bodies. And I reference a a couple of Old Testament uh, passages that people can go look for themselves there. To approach the half-dead victim of the robbers would risk ceding their hierarchical duties, at least until they could complete a purification period. Knowing this, they each passed by on the opposite side. And within this context, they aren't being thoughtless. It's simply that their most pressing thoughts are to their occupations in society. Where do I fit in? What are my duties to the citizenship, in a sense? They aren't devoid of regard for their fellow humans. It's simply that their heaviest social responsibility, they feel, is to the hierarchical order. They're being good citizens. They're also clearly not the heroes of the parable. And that, of course, is, as you said, and as others may know, falls to the, the Samaritan, the person who's considered without status, the person who is considered without prestige and without good standing in society. You know, he's able to, he's able to treat the, the victim as simply a fellow human rather than as a, this person fits into this box in the, in, in the, the, the citizenry. Mm-hmm. You, know, okay. you mentioned earlier, you know, tell people about myself so they can maybe put me in a box there. Well, that goes on in citizenship. Right. Right. We're always concerned about people's status and are you my superior or my inferior? You know, who do I have to listen to? If I don't like what you say, is there, can I go over your head and appeal to someone else? You know, we're, mm-hmm. we're always conscious as if we think like citizens of putting people into box or slotting them on a ladder or a ranking somewhere. And, and of course, it's the Samaritan who does not think like that, maybe because he's not he's not um, 
involved in in all of that one-upsmanship. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so good, and I, I like that. That often the way I hear it presented is, I mean, hands down, everyone agrees the Samaritan did the right thing. He's the guy to <laughs> emulate. That's the whole point, or, or that's the main a major point. Because right, it was in response to someone asked him, "Well, who's my neighbor?" Yes, and that's what made Jesus tell that parable. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, yeah, in terms of the, because I've seen some people stressing that, oh, it's not that the uh, what the priest and the Levite were, you know, monsters or something, but they were busy. And I think there's even been like psychology studies, in a, you know, in a secular context, just to show that. Like if you're, I forget, I'm making up half these details, but it's something like, you know, they stage something where some, you know, somebody is in distress and needs some aid, not like a life threatening thing, but like, I, I don't remember what the details and, and the, so the experimental subjects, like they're also given tasks and it's like the, the number one predictor about whether you would stop and give aid is if you thought you were late for an, uh, you know, to get somewhere. Like if the experimenters okay. gave you some, say, Hey, you got to get this, you know, to this location by this time. And if, you know, if it was kind of like, well, you had to hustle, then you were much less likely to stop and help, you know, the person mm-hmm. that you didn't realize was part of the experiment or it was something like that. And anyway. You know, That's that, fascinating. Yeah. It tells us something about our modern world because one of the hallmarks of our modern world is people walking around with mobile devices. Everybody's mm-hmm. always so fake busy all yep. the time. Yep. So we're too busy to notice things that are in our presence. We're too yes. busy for actual encounters because everybody's busy now because we have devices that that pretend that we're busy. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's why I like your take there, where you were. It sounded like you were even extending it and saying it's not just that. Oh, we can understand why they, but you're you were saying it's conceivable. Like it was probably like a rationalization on their part, but they might sure. even saw the guy and thought. Well, no, if I went and touched that guy, then you know I'm ritually unclean, and then how can I? And yep. so it's more of a it's not that I'm unwilling to, to render aid to my fellow man. It's that I can help, you know, dozens of people over here if I do what I'm supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure somebody else who doesn't have my position of responsibility is going to come along and help the guy. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's that element of as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, these gospel um, events and, and the parables that Jesus uses, they're, they're not, shallow things we can we can dig into them and and get very deep in them in in uh various ways so i'm i'm glad that you you rounded it out a little more than um what i was focusing on uh in the book but it's there there's overlap there mm-hmm. and, and so but your emphasis underscores your point that or mm-hmm. why you selected this that you're trying to show sure clearly here there's the dichotomy between someone acting as a good neighbor and someone you know, at least ostensibly acting as a good member of society in terms of what are my yeah official duties and such. So, mm-hmm. okay, so that's that. And then you got one more from the intro in terms of just you know getting people to understand the framework where you're coming from in this book about sure. the uh, the apostles arguing about who will be the greatest. Sure, it's about the role of the disciples, and and this one uh, occurs at the end of Jesus's ministry. It's at the Last Supper in the Gospel of Luke. Um, although there are parallels from earlier in his ministry in two of the other Gospels. Um, but, but I like the one from Luke because it occurs at the end of his ministry and because it's the most explicit as far as um, explaining to the apostles um, how they should behave and what they should beware. Um, and it's a... Uh, then an argument broke out among them about which of them should be regarded as the greatest. He said to them, 
The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in authority over them are addressed as benefactors. But among you, it shall not be so. Rather, let the greatest among you be as the youngest, and the leader as the servant. That's a very short passage. But it, it shows once again, and it's, it's another thing uh, that Jesus shows people rather than simply telling them. Because mm-hmm. Jesus, of course, behaves this way. Jesus treats people as peers, even though they see him as a leader. So he's reminded, this, this is the last bit of wisdom he can impart on his closest friends mm-hmm. here at the Last Supper. Because in a few hours, he's going to get arrested. So this, this last moments of wisdom, he's trying to tell them, basically, remember, you are peers to your fellow humans. And if I entrust you with greater responsibility, it's not so that you can be an imposer on others. Mm-hmm. It's because I'm giving you a responsibility to other people. And he's, this is as clear as you can be. Uh, here, Jesus goes beyond providing a contrast and then encouraging his disciples to follow the better model. He explicitly tells them to avoid the kind of authority and accompanying social structures they see in the larger civil society. Among you, it shall not be so. Mm-hmm. And he even like washes their feet. At, at that meal, right? Right, which is something that even the lowliest of servants, the the slave class in in Israel, uh, would would not be expected or or obligated to do. You know, this was this was very lowly work, and and he says, "But I I care for you, so I'm going to do it, and I want you to remember this: that I I'm not too good to serve, I'm not too important to help." Yeah. And just to, I mean, for those of us who grew up with these stories, it's, you know, it's for, but it's useful to really just try to like look at it with fresh eyes and just imagine from the, you know, the apostles point of view that like they had seen him raise Lazarus from the dead mm-hmm. and now he's going around, you know, presumably on his hands and, you know, knees going around washing their feet. Like that would have been, you know, and I think it was, is it Peter that even kind of says, you know, d- doesn't want to let him do it. Like, no, this yep, is inappropriate. Yep. And yeah, P- Peter's yeah. trying to say this is inappropriate. And then Jesus <laughs> yeah. tells him, no, you have to. And then Peter, of course, overreacts. Yeah, he says, well, yeah. then, then wash my whole body, not just yeah, my yeah, feet. Yeah. And Jesus is saying, boy, you're, you're not getting this, are you? Yeah. You know? Peter does that a lot where he, he yeah, right? just, you know, <laughs> tells Jesus, no, you're wrong. You're about to commit a mistake. And then Jesus says, no, I'm not. And then he says, oh, okay. Yeah. And then he like... <laughs> So you didn't do it enough, actually. Yeah. And he swings the pendulum way far to the other side, and eventually yeah. Jesus kind of centers him. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So those are pretty, you know, good examples, especially that last one. Uh, I think really does bolster your case that you know he where he, as you say he's he explicitly says not merely that this is the model, but don't be like the world. In the sure. way that you know they have their hierarchical patterns and and so forth. Okay, how they lord it over each other. And I'm I'm very glad that you mentioned uh, looking at some of these passages with fresh eyes. Um, mm-hmm. I go through a lot of passages in this book that you probably haven't heard of the way I'm presenting them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So fresh eyes are important, and looking at them with sort of the cognitive empathy of the early church rather than 
the 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 grand political church that we all hear about from the 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 Christendom days of of you know old Europe. Yes, yes. So we we get into a lot of the uh, into the uh, well, maybe we should look at this again. Hey, everybody, let's take a break from the action to talk about a new sponsor for the show, which is Vita. So this is an interesting new app that I've come across. They have an intriguing business model. What it is, it's a free spam blocking and privacy tool. So you download the Vita app and you select a second phone number that's yours, free and clear, no obligation on your part. Now, anybody who wants to contact you through either phone call or text via that second new phone number that you've established, if they're not on your contact list, then they have to pay whatever rate you determine in order to get through and for you to even see the message or receive the incoming phone call. And so what's happening here, big picture, I'm here commenting as an economist, is that there's lots of companies that are trying to market this way, but they would very much prefer to be able to target their marketing to people who are more likely to want their product or service. And so Vita is effectively allowing you to monetize that fact and so what the companies are willing to pay in terms of targeting their marketing, you now are able to participate in that at whatever rate that you think your time is worth. So the way I'm looking at it right now with my regular phone, I'm getting all kinds of spam texts and calls all the time. And what Vita is allowing is a way for you to be paid for your attention. Again, whatever price you determine. So to see how it works, to give it a shot, go to vita.io slash Murphy. That's V-I-D-A dot I-O slash Murphy. Start getting paid from these outside people trying to reach you at whatever rate you choose. If you go ahead and download today, you'll get your first $1 just for getting the app. Again, that's vita.io slash Murphy. All right, let's get back to the conversation. Okay, so, and then here, so now let's, so again, I don't think anyone's let, let me just jump down back to where I'm going to challenge your, good. your approach. Good. Nobody's denying Jesus shows how to be a good neighbor mm-hmm. or I don't know that anyone's denying that. I'm not denying it. <laughs> I could see though, somebody saying, but Jesus wasn't a bad citizen either. He did nothing wrong. And so then now you Get into it. So, in this, it's like pages 10 and 11. You started talking about it before, like, you know, extemporaneously. So, I don't know if you want to read from it or you want me to, but just the part about, you know, good citizens aren't convicted of crimes against the overarching social order, da, 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 you know, that kind of stuff. Sure, sure. Yes. Um, when pondering Jesus crucified, it inevitably becomes impossible to think he's a good citizen. Uh, as you just said, good citizens aren't convicted of crimes against the overarching social order. Good citizens don't lose their status and standing in society and then endure brutal punishments that are legally justified by the authorities. Good citizens aren't viciously, degradingly paraded through town to reinforce other people's compliance. Good citizens aren't sent to the electric chair, the injection gurney, the firing squad, the guillotine, the gallows, the dungeon, the gulag, the boxcars, the camps, Alcatraz, Guantanamo Bay the cross, but a good neighbor might be. Okay. So that's very powerful, but I want to say, couldn't someone tweak that a little bit and say, no, a, a good citizen could be you know, executed. Like the, the state could make a mistake or there could be malevolent people. You get I'm, the distinction I'm drawing. So couldn't somebody argue, no, Jesus did everything 
thing that was expected of him, you know, in terms of being a good citizen. So it's not that Jesus is telling us to be bad citizens, but good neighbors. You know, he's saying be, you know, be blameless in all things. And, you know, certainly the writings of Paul would underscore that. And yes, Jesus was executed and some people got sent to the gulag by Stalin, but it's not because they actually were bad citizens. It's because Stalin was a paranoid nut job. So how would you respond to that kind of That would be a good hypothesis if we Mm -hmm. did not have the rest of the Gospels. Okay. (laughs) Like the rest of the Gospels show Jesus teaching defiance, um, practicing it himself. they they show him challenging civil authority right up until the end he challenges pilate's authority which i go through right in the first station in the, in the first chapter after the introduction so if if we did not have the rest of the gospels mm-hmm. we could make the we we could put forth the hypothesis maybe it was all just a mistake but there's there's no indication from the Gospels that this is a case of mistaken identity and that Jesus is wrongly convicted. I mean, he's he runs afoul of the authorities and their rules and their imposed order. He undermines it. Um, he teaches people to do things that, that defy this kind of social order. So, yes, he's <laughs> if you look at the rest of the Gospels, then you, you have to you have to be honest about it, which is why in telling, in, in retelling what happens in Jesus' way of the cross, I go back to other reference points in the Gospels that shed mm-hmm. light on what's happening to him at the moment we're, we're actually focusing on during his persecution. Because the, 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 the persecution is not separate from the Gospel message. The persecution is because of the Gospel message. Right, okay. So again, it it's not that I think you're wrong. I'm just I want to push this to really distill it. So good, yeah, can, good, can you? Good. Yes, thank you. Like yeah, the the punches pile. That's probably a good one. Can you walk us through that one? Like again, just showing it's not merely that they're going to go crucify Jesus for crimes he didn't commit, but you do think there is a sense in which he really was, you know, not a good citizen and and not and not merely in a you know vacuous sense. I, I go through it in more detail in other passages, but the the part well, you, about Pilate whichever ones is, you think are the most relevant for yeah for that narrow point for someone saying yeah Jesus is a great neighbor of course he is he's perfect but he's also a, you know uh, an unblemished citizen there's nothing he did wrong as a, if, if everyone were like you know if you were a ruler and everyone were like Jesus in your kingdom that would be a pretty great kingdom to have you you know it's, and so are. Are you saying that that's not correct? I guess that's maybe one way of putting it. And then, and then, if so, what passages from the gospel would you use to to show you know your perspective on that? If everyone were a good neighbor, you'd have a wonderful society, but you would not have a a a wonderful state as we think of the state. Okay, okay, that helps. Okay, so when you say citizen, because I'm glad you know this is a useful conversation because it's I think a lot of people when they think citizen they think that just means like the people who live in my country. And, and maybe you're saying, well, if, if by country you mean a political jurisdiction or something, then yes. But if you just mean the people who happen to live around where you grew up in, like your neighbors, no, that's not, those aren't interchangeable terms. 
citizen and neighbor are different mindsets with different value systems. Um, mm-hmm. I am technically a citizen of a lot of things. Mm-hmm. The town where I live, the county where I live, the state where I live, the country where I live. Soon some people want us to be globalist citizens of the UN or, or the WEF or something. Right. Um, so I'm technically a citizen of a lot of things because it's a category that, that just gets foisted on me from others. But I don't have a citizen mindset. Mm-hmm. I have a neighbor's mindset. The, the difference is is attitude. The difference is will. The difference is your your values and your intentions and and if you're true to them then there also are tensions and conflicts in in expressing them and uh, the, the the pilot one is is maybe one of those um good examples because um uh the gospel of john recounts some of the conversation between pilot and jesus where pilot says uh, do you not speak to me do you not know that i have power to release you and i have power to crucify you Jesus answered him, you would have no power over me if it had not been given to you from above. For this reason, the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. And, and here's that explanation of let's look at this with fresh eyes. Mm-hmm. Uh, some read this as Jesus claiming Pilate has been divinely justified as the civil ruler, the quote, given to you from above. But such an interpretation seems at odds with the rest of what Jesus says and the rest of the gospel. Jesus isn't justifying Pilate. Jesus is humbling Pilate. First, Pilate's position as Roman governor, his place in the violence-based social hierarchy, is literally given to him by his Roman superiors from above. It's not Mm -hmm. given to him by God. It's given to him from elsewhere in the, the hierarchy. Second, to the extent that Pilate receives power from God, it is because all people receive power from God. We all get grace. We all get some glimpse of God sharing God's life in our lives. That that doesn't make any of us um, sort of like God's special pet. You know, we, we all have that. So all people receive power from God. Pilate is trying to show Jesus how self-righteously powerful and important Pilate is. Jesus is trying to show Pilate how much Pilate is like everyone else. Mm-hmm. This is not justifying what Pilate is doing. And if you want further proof of that, it's that Jesus calls what Pilate is about to do a sin. Yeah, yeah. That's now, he point. says it in the context of saying, those who handed me over to you have the greater sin. But that just means that Pilate has a lesser sin that's still a sin. Yeah, still a sin. Yep, yep. <sighs> Right. Okay. Yes. Yes. If this is just if Mm -hmm. if Pilate is justified, then not only is Pilate not sinning, but no one who follows Pilate's commands is sinning. And it's Mm -hmm. clear that people are sinning in what they're doing to Jesus. Jesus is clear about it, even on the cross where he says, "Forgive them; they know not what they do." Right. Well, if if everybody if Pilate is justified and therefore everybody else is justified in carrying out what Pilate decreed, then there's nothing to forgive. Right, yeah. He doesn't look to heaven and say, thank you, Father, for letting them carry out, you know, their <laughs> their, their, their righteous acts that you, you gave them power to do or something like no. that. It's not what he says, forgive no. them, yeah. It, it's all sin. Yeah. <laughs> now, there are different degrees depending on your level of hatred and your level of manipulation, but, mm-hmm. but it's all sin, and, there, and there's no, I was just doing my job way to get out of it. Mm-hmm. So... <laughs> 
There's no, I was just following orders to get out of it either. Right, right. Okay. Um, do you have other ones you want? Again, with the, the very, uh, at this point, I'm, you know, splitting hairs here just to really get into the weeds. But again, for someone who wants to say, uh, okay, yeah, Pilate's a jerk and he's doing something wrong, but, you know, it, Jesus wasn't a bad citizen in that scene. He was just explaining to Pilate, you know, the nature of political authority and, you know, maybe he's a bit uh, irreverent. You could say he, you know, maybe he was a smart aleck or something, but is that, is that being a oh, bad was, yes. yeah. <laughs> So even there, like, even as I'm trying to be the hypothetical person, like, clearly— He was a smart aleck, yes. Yeah, it's it's not somebody who, you know, is, is being very deferential and, oh, yes, hollowed, you know, pilot, uh, you, good sir, you know, da-da-da-da. I come humbly before you. That That's not the way Jesus is talking to him. Even though he did, you know, was humble in front of his— disciples the night before, right? Yes. Is the night before? Yeah. Uh, so anyway, so it is interesting to hear. Yeah. He's, well, he is humble before Pilate because he's treating Pilate as a peer, but of course that's not what Pilate wants. Right. Pilate's the superior. Pilate right. wants deference. The high priest in the Sanhedrin wanted deference. Yeah. They did not I, want peers. What I mean is like, let's say I'm a, co- a college professor and the kid comes in and he wants an extension on his midterm and he's kind of rude. And I say, don't you understand? I have the power to give you the extension or not. And the kid says, well, the only reason you have it is because the, you know, the, the provost hired you. Like I would probably be taken aback. Are you kidding me? You're- <laughs> yeah. oh, it, it, and it is because in that situation, yeah. you're looking at superior subordinate. Right. And it, it, it is smart alecky in that dynamic. Um, later on in that conversation or, or before, but within that same conversation, Pilate says to Jesus, aren't you the king of the Jews? And Jesus goes, uh, you say so. Mm-hmm. Like he won't give him a yes or a no. He, he like right. mocks the entire notion. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you say so. <laughs> right. Okay, so so yes. I, do you how, how do you feel to... about this? So sure. just to circle back. So right, if, I'm, if I were trying to put it into the box of like, oh, you, you know, you, you could be a good citizen and still end up in the electric chair just because the authorities got the wrong guy or something. Even there, as you were going to trial and whatever, you you would probably have your lawyer and you'd say, no, Your Honor, you're making a mistake here. That the you know the eyewitness was mistaken. I had the same jacket on as the assailant, but it wasn't me. And you, and no, if, you wouldn't be just like sarcastically saying like, I'm out of order. You're out of order. This whole court's out. Of, you know, and so in that sense, right? That it um, this isn't anyway. I, I I see now more and more in line with what you're saying. Did you want to do another one? Do you want to get to perhaps the most misinterpreted passage in the gospel? I think I have to now, yes. Well, you have to now, right? Um, Jesus, from the Sermon on the Mount, which is early in his public ministry, and you've probably heard all of these three, especially the first one. Jesus uh, teaching his, uh, his, those gathered there, when someone strikes you on your right cheek, turn the other one to him as well. If anyone wants to go to law with you over your tunic, hand him your cloak as well. Should anyone press you into service for one mile, go with him for two miles. How has that been taught to you over the years? Because I could tell you how they've been taught to me, but... How have those passages and those lessons been been explained to you over the years? Mm, I mean, I I think uh, I think I've even seen it like as a defense of socialism. 
right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not quite. Um, in each of these three cases, Jesus preaches defiance of the rigidly hierarchical social order. In other words, Jesus teaches to be a good neighbor, but a bad citizen. And here we go. First, most people are right-handed, whether naturally or with lots of practice, especially back in Jesus's time. There was no, you know, baseball where if you were left-handed, you could uh, make many millions of dollars as Mm -hmm. a specialist getting out left-handed batters. Um, To be struck on the right cheek means you've received a backhanded slap. A right-handed person can't strike you on your right cheek unless they backhand you. All right. Which was done by superiors to inferiors. It was a sign of your beneath me. Offering your left cheek is to declare yourself defiantly to be your striker's equal. They don't like this. They have quite a caste system back then, as do most societies. This is defiance. This is not let people walk all over you. This is find a way to assert your dignity in a way that does not do the evil back to the other person. Jesus doesn't say, well, slap the other guy back. No, he says, assert your dignity. Second, a cloak was a vital possession that could not be withheld from its owner overnight. And I, uh, I cite Exodus there if people want to go um, looking for further reading on that. To a plaintiff who would use the courts to take your tunic over a debt, giving him your cloak would suddenly turn the plaintiff's own cherished legalism against him. Hmm. Third, the Roman occupiers of Palestine, as they called it, could force a local man into hard labor, but only for a maximum of one mile. To keep going beyond a mile put the Roman at risk of punishment if his superiors found out. Another dignity-asserting act of defiance. The people of Jesus' time who understood these cultural markers and these cultural references knew very early in Jesus' public ministry that he was teaching defiance. He wasn't teaching one-upsmanship and do it back to them. He wasn't teaching revenge. Mm -hmm. He wasn't teaching have a revolution and put your people in charge. He was teaching human dignity and how to assert that in the face of those who will not recognize it in you. And unfortunately, it's been interpreted over the years as Christians should let people walk all over them. Christians should, should uh, never assert anything at all. Christians should be weak. Christians should let people steal and, and um, almost encourage and enable indignities. And that's not it at all. That's not it at all. Okay, that's Dignity the, is gutsy. Yeah, the I think I may have heard the thing about the slapping, but mm-hmm. but I don't think it they they had the the take on it that you did like to show it, it was you know you standing up to someone who thought he was your superior. Yep. Um so that's intriguing and and I don't think I've ever heard the thing of which you were saying about you know the Roman could compel you to go a mile but that was it. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and of course, I talk about this passage in the, the, the part of Jesus' persecution where Simon helps carry Jesus' cross because that's what happens to Simon. Yeah. They, yeah. They, the way it's translated is the same way that Jesus translate, was talking about it and Jesus' message is translated. They press in to service Simon. 
to help carry Jesus across. So there's this guy who was out there in public watching this, this horrible spectacle. And the Romans so say, hey, you get over here. And, you know, if he doesn't go, they're going to force him anyway or maybe kill him. So mm-hmm. there goes Simon pressed into service. So this was a real thing back then, and they knew about it. Yes. It, and so, you, by the way, just for people who aren't Catholic, like, can you explain what the Stations of the Cross are? Just sure. for know what that is, what that means. Uh, early Christianity is a very much a pilgrimage religion. It's um, it's steeped in real events and real history, and so there were very early on in the church, shortly after Jesus' death, people who would go around to the various sites of Jesus' ministry and and pray about them. And so the the way of the cross becomes um, a, a mini pilgrimage within Jerusalem. In fact, it it uh, it plays a role in the development of the holiday that we translated into English called Easter. And some of our um, Romance language um, friends would call uh, some version of Pascha, which still means Passover. Italians, French, mm-hmm. uh, Spanish, Romanian would call it some variation of Pascha. Um, and uh, so uh, the, the idea of walking the way of the cross is important to early Christians, um, especially since Jesus tells them that if they are faithful to him, they will, might be put in this exact position, not figuratively, but literally, where they're now persecuted themselves. Mm-hmm. And this happens to many, many early Christians pre-Constantine. So the Stations of the Cross are, um, there's traditionally 14 of them, and they're not only a Catholic devotional. There are other denominations of Christianity who have kept the, the Stations of the Cross. Um, it's, it's breaking down Jesus's persecution into short scenes that can be meditated upon more deeply. And uh, the, the way I organize them in the book is the way they're traditionally organized, but I also draw the connections to the Gospels where they're found. And in fact, all of them, except one of the traditional stations, are either explicitly in the Gospels, the four canonical Gospels in the Bible, or implicitly in there based on other details that Jesus' audience would have known about. Mm. So they're and I, me, there except one. And I, okay, so thank you. I I was raised Catholic, so I like, i you know, I'm very familiar with the Catholic mass and, and okay. going through the stations and, okay. you know, the priest reads certain elements and then the congregation reads other parts and you're going through, it's like you're doing a play. And Sure, anyway. if you've done a devotional yeah. uh, based yeah. on the, the stations, yes. Okay, so that, yeah, that's what I was going to say. It was, uh, and then, yeah, I just remember as a kid that the part when, you know, Simon is compelled to bear the cross and, you know, how they mm-hmm. would comment on that. And, you know, it's, he was bearing Jesus' cross, but he didn't like voluntarily embrace it and, how much more so if if you voluntarily you know sure. take on the you know pick up your cross and follow Jesus? Oh, and my um, take on it is maybe Simon did voluntarily embrace it later, because Mark goes through the trouble of naming Simon and his sons, which means that they would have been known to the early Christian community. Mm-hmm. So it's um, there's good textual indication that Simon. We don't know if he was on Jesus' side right away. Right. But eventually, it seems that he does. Um, and I, I try to sum that up. Um, it seems that Simon would eventually, would indeed eventually go the extra mile, a clear act of defying the Roman and Israelite authorities, by joining the church. But before that can happen, Golgotha beckons. So, you know, may, maybe this happens, maybe this all starts for Simon when he's against his will, pressed into service, and then realizes the full measure or a fuller measure of what's happening here. Mm-hmm. And it, it touches him deeply enough that 
he now joins that early Christian community. Also, to, I don't know if this is a stretcher, but it does seem like there's something weird about the whole thing. Like, you know, the Roman soldiers sitting there watching Jesus carrying it, and he clear, he's not going to make it. Yep. You know, and they're just like, well, what are we going to do? And it's just, there's something weird to me about, well, let's get someone to help him. Sure. In order to allow us to finish executing him. You know, <laughs> it's just, it's almost like how you give a guy a last meal or something before you give him the chair. Like, it's kind of a weird thing. You know, like there's some element of humanity involved and, you know, well, geez, I mean, it'd be kind of unreasonable expecting to carry the cross all the way by himself before we nail him to it. So. <laughs> um, yes, I, I, I say um, that um, it, it would be, it would be a shame if Jesus died before they could kill him. Yeah, right. You know, that that's me being a little bit of a smart aleck. But yeah, but uh, yeah. like that's literally it. Like no, you can't die yet. We have to kill you. R- right, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you have to stay alive so we can kill you. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so um this is fast things so let me again, let me try let me try to bring some passages. Sure. The obvious do. ones that maybe you know Geez, Dominic, I mean, they ask him, should we pay the tax? And he says, render unto Caesar. So isn't he clearly just saying, you know, yep, the things of God are God's, but you should also be a good citizen and pay your taxes. Okay, I don't go into that passage in this book because that mm. almost deserves its its own sure. uh, exodus sure. there. Um, that encounter happens very near the end of Jesus' public ministry, almost right before his persecution as uh, the Israelite authorities are looking for a way to trap Jesus. So they approach him with someone, um, it's scholars of the law approach him and say, is it lawful to pay the tax to Caesar or not? Um, and it's almost one of those, you know, um, damned if you do, damned if you don't right, right. answers. But of course, Jesus answers it differently. He says to them, um, show me the coin used to pay the tax. And we take this for granted now that we all carry around money in our pockets. Mm-hmm. But back then, there was lots of different kinds of money in circulation. And by asking, show me the the coin that pays the tax, and for somebody to just naively go along and say, yeah, here, here's the coin that pays the tax. One of the people questioning Jesus says, here it is. Mm -hmm. What that person is doing in that moment is showing that they have an arrangement with Caesar. They're one of Caesar's cronies. So Jesus is now exposing them as being cronies and saying, oh, okay, you have an allegiance with Caesar? Well, Caesar's got a price. Caesar's okay. got a price. You want this? You worship this? Caesar has a price. Don't be surprised when you have to pay it. Mm-hmm. And of course, he does this without giving them the answer that they wanted to trick him. Instead, he, he gets them to reveal their own nefarious dealings. Here you are yep. trying to make yourselves uh, out to be the champions of the people. And you're the ones who have this arrangement with Caesar. Yeah, you're carrying around the oppressor's money in your pocket. You're carrying around yeah. the symbol of Caesar. You, you're not carrying around other types of money. You're readily showing people, oh, here's Caesar's coin with Caesar's image on it when someone asks you for it. There it is. And it's, it, it, they did have an arrangement with Caesar. That was, that was their, uh, you know, federalism is kind of a new thing in the modern world, and the U.S. does it um, 
or, or at least did for mm-hmm. a while at the U.S.'s founding. We gave it a good try. <laughs> we, we gave it a good try. We're not sure quite how long it lasted, but we gave it a good try, and it's still there on those documents that people don't read anymore. Um, <laughs> but they take but, an oath to uphold. That's the yeah, important thing. They take thing. an oath, right? <laughs> but, but back then, this was this was sort of federalism. Like There was an arrangement between the, the Jewish civil authorities, who were also religious authorities, and the Roman civil authorities, who frankly back then were also religious authorities. You know, you you worship the Roman Empire as representatives of the Roman gods. Um, mm. You know, there was a you know, okay. The Romans will oversee it, but the the Israelite authorities have sort of like states within a country. They mm. have authorities within there, mm-hmm. which is why when they bring Jesus to Pilate, Pilate's asking them, "Well, what law of yours did he break here?" Right. You know, Pilate is almost in a sense deferring to their law. Okay, well, I have nothing against the guy. You tell me why you have something against the guy, and we'll talk. Mm-hmm. So they, they have an arrangement here. They have a crony arrangement with the Romans. And Jesus exposes them for it, and Jesus tells them what they should already know, which is, hey, man, Caesar's got a price. You want that? Caesar's got a price. You want big government? What, what's the quote? A government big enough to give you everything you want is, is also big enough to take everything you like away from you or something to that effect. You want that arrangement with government? Government has a price. Be careful what you wish for. This in no way, he, he in no way tells his followers to go pay the tax. This is right before he's persecuted. He, he exposes people who are trying to trick them and tells them that their arrangement, their crony situation will have a price. Mm-hmm. But he in no way tells the rest of his followers, hey, you jump on the crony train here. You be cronies, too. He doesn't tell them that. Well, what's also just brilliant about his answer. So, again, I this has come up a lot on this podcast, but in case people have never heard me say this. I, I know you know this, Dominic, but I'm just giving a mm-hmm. background. No, please do. Again, it, I, it was I not as it. Yeah, it was not a sincere question that they asked no, him. No. It was a trap. They thought, no, if he says, yes, pay the tax to Caesar— then the people who think he's the Messiah and is going to be a revolutionary are going to be mad and think he's a sellout and a coward. And if he says, no, don't pay the tax to Caesar, then they're going to go tattle on him and say, oh, he said, don't pay the tax. You guys should do something about this guy. Yep. So They'll they arrest thought, him right there. Yeah, so they thought no matter what he says, you know, so it's not that they cared what his answer was. They just thought we've got him either way. Mm-hmm. And then he flips it on him and then says a tautology, give to God what's God's and give to Caesar what is Caesar's. That's mm-hmm. clearly a true statement. How could that not be true? Yep. But then you're like, what, did he actually answer the question? You're, you're not really sure what his answer was. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh-huh. Like, they would just be bu- you know, befuddled and be, you know, they marveled at his response kind of thing. So His answer is that each of us has to answer that for ourselves. Right, How much right. of Caesar do you want to participate in? Mm-hmm. How much of Caesar's graft and, and grandeur and pageantry and power do you want to celebrate? However much you want that, there's a price. Now, there might be a price anyway, as Jesus pays during his persecution and his death, Mm -hmm. but he's telling even the people who are complying, there's a price to what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Something else popped into my head while you were talking that I think is consistent with your, uh, the theme of your book here that, right. I I remember when I was little here and it was probably like during the passion or, you know, the, the stations of the cross and whatnot, that I thought I didn't understand, like, why are they, you know, pilots sending them back and forth, and then pilot and Herod are buddies and stuff, and what, and 
I didn't get because you know when I'm when you're a kid you just think oh the political ruler is just in charge and that's it so I didn't understand like you know the dynamics what you're saying with the federalism and also how Pilate was afraid of the crowds you know mm -hmm. it was like like you know the, there was a sense in which Pilate knew yeah this we really shouldn't be killing this guy but you know I don't want there to be a riot here and so maybe that's another way too of showing the people in their capacity in the mental framework of them thinking we are here subject under Pilate. He has the political authority to, to go crucify someone and we demand crucify him free Barabbas. That's not a very neighborly, you know, whereas when they were just with Jesus one-on-one -on -one and he was part of the community, they were, you know, laying down palms and stuff and he was healing them. But yet when it was in a more political framework, they're demanding that, you know, he gets crucified. Mm -hmm. So just kind of showing the same people, as neighbors, you know, or as peers and, hey, Jesus, I'm lame. Can you come give me a hand here versus, yeah, crucify him. Mm -hmm. So, and, and you brought up earlier about people's expectations of Jesus. Um, when Jesus enters Jerusalem the final time and people are thrown down the palms, you wonder how many people there still thought, oh, here comes the guy who's going to be the military conqueror. He's here to start the revolution. And mm -hmm. then, you know, very little time passes in, in the way we celebrate it in our liturgical years. It's usually just about a week um, between, you know, say Palm Sunday and, and the, the Paschal celebration. Um, you know, it's only a week, but yeah, the, sure. There were probably a lot of people who were disappointed. Like, you know, uh, I'll give you the modern version of that. This isn't what we voted for. Yeah. <laughs> right. And how quickly they, they turn on him. Sure. Um, in, in Station 10, which is in Chapter 4, I go through what you're talking about, which, which was um, the different attitudes toward Jesus, and that not everybody had the same attitude towards Jesus, but they all failed in a different way. Um, the Israelite authorities hate Jesus because the elimination of Jesus bodes well for their selfish hierarchical power over the common people. The obedient among the common people hate Jesus because their respected authorities endorse such a mindset and then validate them for their compliance. Pilate hates Jesus because Jesus is the latest potential spark for yet another Israelite conflagration that inconveniences Pilate's governorship. The Roman enforcers hate Jesus for sheer sport, it seems, and for the pride they take in their evil duties. So, not everybody is of one mind here. They each have mm -hmm. their own interests, mm -hmm. but their interests overlap and converge in, let's treat this guy like garbage and get rid of him mm -hmm. in, in the worst way possible. Yeah. Yeah. They didn't uh, give him a lethal injection. Right. Um, so let me... I think uh, got about more pushback if if you have yeah. any. I I like that. It, it I would yeah. It sharpens if, me, and I think it's a good explanation because I I think you're a good proxy for people who would be reading the book. Okay. Yes. So how about one more? Sure. Uh, and I think that'll be a good one. And that you know, obviously, any final words you want. Sure. What about the obvious? You know, Romans thirteen. So this isn't about Jesus per se, but for people who think Paul knew what he was talking about. Doesn't he clearly tell Christians to be good citizens? And so, you know, it's, it's, that seems hard to, to square with, you know, this, this message of your book, Dominic. Uh, I don't go through Romans 13 uh, in here because that, that's almost a, a separate thing to take over. Mm -hmm. um, sure. it, it's also the sense that for 
Romans 13, it's only verses one through seven that people like to cite. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they fail to realize that, first of all, Romans um, is not broken, broken into chapters until much later. Uh, the sections of Roman, where Romans 13, 1 through 7 occurs, actually begins with, station, with uh, chapter 12. So if you're, if you're reading Romans 13, 1 to 7 to say, well, you have to be obedient to government, then you're contradicting the rest of chapter 13, the rest of the letter, the rest of the New Testament, the rest of Paul's life, because Paul dies as a criminal as well. Mm-hmm. And Jesus's life as well. Um, the, the passages in Romans 13, 1 to 7, first of all, Paul is speaking about, um, he's writing almost parody, where he's speaking of an idealized government that obviously does not exist, mm-hmm. and that people of his time would know does not exist. He's also not, uh, his concern is also that people do not become revolutionaries. Because this is a time where there is a lot of revolutionary fervor amongst uh, the the Israelite people. Um, within a few years of of Paul's life in seventy A.D., there's going to be a revolution where the the uh, Israelite people, what remains of them, are going to be crushed mm-hmm. in a bloody revolution. Um, Jesus warns about such a thing as well during his um, public ministries. So Paul's trying to tell people, uh, look, don't be a revolutionary. Don't go looking for trouble. Uh, and, and yeah, if, if, there's a, if, if you ever find an idealized government where your government leaders are not asking you to do things wrong, then there's, there's no reason to pick a fight for them with them. If they're not asking you to do something wrong, there's no reason to pick a fight. But immediately after verses 1 through 7 that everybody cites, um, Paul says, oh, nothing to anybody except um, uh, the love of God or something to that effect, depending on your translation. So uh, again, people who, who narrow down, who all of Christian social duty to Romans 13, 1 to 7, they're, they're missing the fact that Paul's writing parody. They've ignored the fact that Paul doesn't live that way. They've ignored the fact that the rest of the New Testament, the, the early church doesn't live that way. They're ignoring the rest of that letter. They're ignoring Paul's other letters. They're ignoring the Gospels. They're ignoring Jesus, all because they want to twist seven lines that they don't understand to be a pro-government statement. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the kind of cherry-picking that is, frankly, it's, it's bad biblical study. It's, it's bad scriptural study. It's, it's bad literacy. You'd never do that to a novel you read. You'd never do that to a movie you watched. You'd never do that to a podcast you listened to. Mm-hmm. And yet people do that to the entire New Testament. Seven verses that they don't understand is written as, as quasi-parody and, and idealized situation, not necessarily the present situation that the, the people who would have uh, read that letter were living under. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's rationalizing. It's starting with your conclusion that we're supposed to be good citizens and then just cherry picking and fit and squeezing it into your already arrived at conclusion. Mm-hmm. But it's, it, it's not a conclusion you would arrive at if you actually understood those, that passage in its context of the rest of the letter and Paul's life and the life of the early church and the life of Christ. Mm-hmm. The okay. Bible's difficult yes. if you're lazy. Like it takes <laughs> effort anyway, but it's especially difficult if you're lazy about it. Don't be lazy. Right, right. I encourage people to make the effort. And it wouldn't be surprising if it's the inspired Word of God that 
you have to read it several times and every time you're going to get something different and more out of it. And like, oh, wait, there's this element too. You find an extra layer. Yeah. The Holy Spirit is inexhaustible. God is inexhaustible. As deep as you want to go in your faith, there's always room. As deep as you want to delve into God's grace, God's mm-hmm. sharing God's life in your life. As deeply as you want to explore that, you will not exhaust God. Keep going. Do it. Make the journey. Yeah, you, you won't be you disappointed a, either. That's great. You had, you had a nice shield of if, like, just do it. There, the right? End. Almost. <laughs> yes. Can we put it on a sneaker as a slogan? <laughs> um, okay. Let me. Is the following an a accurate summary of your position? Okay. That there's a sense in which. Yes, if you're going to be if you're going to be a follower of Christ, you're certainly going to be a good neighbor. Yes. But that's the there's goal. there is a sense in which you're not going to be a good citizen. However, it's it's uh to avoid misunderstanding, it's not that the political authorities are going to be sitting around saying, "Oh, we better, you know, train up some more cops and get some more prisons right because these these Christians are going to get out of hand and get unruly and they might try to overthrow it." That's not the threat to them. However, there is a threat in the long run in the sense that as the Christians are sharing the gospel that undermines the legitimacy of the coercive state. Mm-hmm. And so in a sense, like the the fear that people have that, you know, partly explains like, why would they tolerate such a monstrous government? Like everyone can see how the awful things their government does all the time. And yes, like, well, we need it because otherwise these bad guys over there would hurt us. And these, you know, and so like a lot of that's just driven by fear and, you know, dis- and so to the extent that, you know, more and more people became good neighbors in the Christian sense, mm-hmm. that ostensible need for this strong state that's, you know, in the wings waiting to protect us and so forth, like that would evaporate. And so, yes, actually a Christian, a truly Christian society would be, a threat to the coercive political authorities, but not because they're going to go make bombs in the basement and go overthrow them violently. Correct. Uh, Christians don't overthrow. Christians undermine. You may have heard the term underthrow, or uh, uh, I've heard it expressed as Irish democracy. Just uh, undermining. Undermining. Uh, The Christian call is to be a good neighbor, and that includes even to people who are at odds with you. The fact that you are a bad citizen is not an excuse to be a bad neighbor. Mm -hmm. And that's what the revolutionaries are. The revolutionaries are the people who take, well, if I'm a a, a bad citizen, then, then in the Christian sense, they're also being bad neighbors. Jesus is not teaching bad neighbor, bad citizen. He's teaching good neighbor, good citizen. And there, there is going to be a conflict there eventually. And when it happens, you have to decide what your priority is. Yep. Okay. Very good. And each of us has to decide that because, again, it's not imposed. It's not even imposed by Jesus to the people of his time. Mm -hmm. It's a series of questions. It's an example and a model given for them to emulate. Um, It's it's Jesus demonstrating. um, I'm a big logic guy. I like logic. I don't like logical fallacies. And Jesus does not do logical fallacies either. He doesn't go around telling people, I'm the new leader. Do what I tell you, because that would be the logical fallacy of appeal to authority. Jesus often does the opposite. 
people who find out, hey, you're the chosen one, you're 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 the Messiah. Jesus says, okay, can you keep it down a little bit? Mm-hmm. I'm trying not to approach people as if I'm some sort of big shot that they have to bend their knee to. Yep. Yep. You know. So yeah, we're called to be good neighbors. Yeah, and you will fact, find it, that makes you a bad citizen. Yeah, as but you that's say, not that an excuse to be a bad neighbor to the people you oppose. Right, right. And as you say too, that the the people interrogating him would get frustrated, like you know, Pilate yeah. saying, "Don't you know?" and the uh, religious authorities saying, "Tell us plainly." You know, are you <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> like who are you? Who you claim to be? Tell us plainly, because like he's kind of giving them you know evasive answers up to them that he's clearly not coming out with trumpets blazing. Saying, they want to do appeal to authority. Yeah. It's a shortcut. Mm-hmm. It's easy. Mm-hmm. It's lazy thinking. Logical fallacies are lazy thinking. You know, it all comes together. You know, logical fallacies are lazy thinking. Appeal to authority is a logical fallacy. Appeal to authority is how human society has been organized since human civilization has existed. Mm-hmm. It's tribal. It's hierarchical. It's imposed. Status is the most important thing, outsourcing, fitting in, conforming rather than consenting. Um, you know, it, it's, it's there. The call to a good neighbor is difficult. Jesus doesn't say it will be easy. He says it will be blessed. Mm-hmm. And I think you'll find that it's, it, being a, a genuinely good neighbor is satisfying in ways that being a good citizen are not. There's no status involved in it. There's no parades. There's no you get power over others. You know, mm-hmm. there, there's no, you get to steal from other people. There's no double standards of behavior and violence. Um, but it's, it's, it's truly content and, and truly pointing towards happiness mm-hmm. in that sense. Even if it doesn't look happy all the time, there's, yep. there's a, a, a genuine peace to how you live. If you get your, your priority straight and your attitude straight. Well, I think that's a good note to end on. Do you want to uh, tell people, Dominic, how they can get the book or you know, where your Substack is? Uh, the book is available through Publishing On Demand. If uh, you're familiar with Amazon.com or BarnesandNoble.com or Lulu.com, you can search for Good Neighbor, Bad Citizen. Uh, you could search for my name as well, Dominic Scarcella. Um, it's a very short book. It's uh, for those platforms that have it, like uh, Amazon and Barnes and Noble. It's also available as an ebook, so it's a Kindle for Amazon and Nook for Barnes and Noble, or it's available as, as um, a paperback at Amazon, Barnes and Noble, or at Lulu as well. Lulu also has a paperback available. Um, you can find my continued writings in a Substack of the same name, "Good Neighbor, Bad Citizen," on Substack, and I'll I'll send you a link for that if you uh, yeah. if you do show notes and, and things like that. No, but I call the Substack uh, continuing the conversation. I do a, a, a once a week Wednesday wake up report that uh, it, it's about a three or four minute read somewhere under 800 words where I take a topic from the book and uh, it may be tied to um, a, a very timely uh, event that happens in, in our world um, or it just may be a, a, a thematic um essay, but I, I do have that to continue the, the conversation. And of course, it's, it's free to read. It's free to comment. It's free to share links. Um, it's uh, free to react. And uh, please, uh, if it, I love the fact that this book has allowed me to have more conversations with people who are genuinely interested. That doesn't just mean podcasts like this, which, which mm-hmm. I've enjoyed a lot, Bob. So thank you for that. But I enjoy just finding ordinary people who 
who want to, to continue the conversation, who, who first want to start the conversation and then want to keep it going. So I, I thank everyone who's, who's read the book, um, read the Substack, read both, um, engaged with me, left reviews on the, the platforms where they purchased the book, um, left comments or reactions on some of the weekly posts. Uh, it's, we, if we're going to be good neighbors and insist that it's possible to have a consent-based voluntary interactions in society, then, then we should lead by example, right? So let's, let's do that for each other. Let's, um, let, let's be peers and, and approach each other um, in, in good faith and, and speak up when we think we have something to say and, and be active listeners when someone uh, takes the time to, to engage us. Well, very well said. And folks, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 310 to get the links there if you didn't uh, jot it down as Dominic was uh, explaining it. So folks, my guest has been Dominic Scarcella. Dominic, this is a very enjoyable conversation for me and uh, I think you yes, liked sir. it too. So, <laughs> so thank you for uh, writing the book and your continued work and I hope uh, you'll get some more followers out of this conversation. Thank you. Thank you very much for, for all you do and for, for having me as your guest today. Thanks. And thank you everyone for tuning in. We'll see you next time. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com. <laughs>